2: Warning! This podcast contains spoilers for the first episode of the new Halo series on Paramount Plus, Elden Ring, kind of not really, Shadow of the Colossus, which is a game that is almost 20 years old now but is well worth your time if you can play it, Injustice, and possibly more video games. You have been warned. My name is Jason Concepcion, and welcome to X-Ray Vision, the crooked podcast where we dive deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture. On today's action-packed episode in the airlock, we will recap the first episode of Paramount Plus's adaptation of... The Halo video game series, Halo, and discuss which video games we're currently playing. Um, I'm playing only one, and it's taken over my life, and I need help. Help me. Continuing our coverage of the Batman, we're joined in the Hive Mind by the legendary comics writer Grant Morrison discuss their iconic career. Uh, in Nerd Out, a audience member tells us about Final Fantasy IV Free Enterprise, and in the end game, we rank our top three video game adaptations. To do all of that, Joining us today is writer, comics, encyclopedia, brilliant creator, Rosie Knight. Rosie, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. What's, what's going on? What's happening? What's happening with you? <laughs> what's happening oh, with the world? Let's ta- let, well, let's talk about it. We've been teasing it. Oh, so Let's yes, just talk yes, about yes. it here. We've been teasing it, but let's talk about uh, your comics project Which you can now safely announce. I can now talk about it. I would love it if you'd announce it.
3: Okay, so if you've read any of my stuff, you've heard me on the show, you'll know that I love Godzilla. Godzilla's one of my absolute favorite things. And uh, me and this absolutely brilliant artist called Oliver Ono, who you might actually already follow on Instagram because he's very popular. Um, We are doing a Godzilla comic and it is called Godzilla Rivals 2 versus Batra, which is a very long name, but it's a really cool mashup comic. We're allowed to announce it now. They're finishing up final work on the cover, and it is a 40-page one-shot, and it is really, really cool. It's set in the British seaside, because I'm from London, and, and that was somewhere that Oliver actually spent a lot of time as a kid too, so we're just really excited about it. It's basically like Studio Ghibli meets Godzilla, with a lot wow. of kaiju fighting action. So, yeah. and uh, Available when? Okay, so it looks like if you read comics or you have started a pull list because of us, you will know that comics are listed many months before they come out. So it should be around July. The beginning-ish of July, we hope. And as soon as it is really available. And we have a link where you can order it and stuff. I'll make sure that we put it in the show notes and people can have a look. And hopefully we'll talk about it more because Oliver's art is like so incredible. And definitely just go follow him on Instagram, Oliver Ono. And it's just so exciting. And I'm really happy that this is the first place I've gotten to talk about
2: it. So thank you for asking. Well, that is fantastic. And we're gonna have to have uh, y'all on to discuss your work. Now let us step into and out of the airlock to discuss Halo. Bum 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 halo. Okay, folks, uh, Paramount Plus's uh, adaptation of Halo, it's been long waited for. Man, I remember Rosie. Back in like Halo 3 days, Mm -hmm. Halo 3 had an absolutely incredible uh, promotional campaign that was like these really grounded action vignettes of Master Chief and his apocalyptic war against the Covenant uh, alien races. Uh, And it was really, really cool. And it was around that time that people were like, oh, Halo movie. It's going to happen. Who will it be? Will it be uh, Spielberg? Mm -hmm. Will it be Neil Blomkamp of District 9? Who will it be? And this has been – we've been waiting for it, waiting for it, waiting for it. I had forgotten about it. I stopped playing Halo. I started playing Halo again. (laughs) I stopped again and then I started again. And now here we are. The year is 2022 and the Halo – television series uh-huh. uh, has now aired on paramount plus we'll have it aired by the time you are listening to this uh and we are going to recap now episode one of the halo series titled contact written by stephen kane and kyle killen the year is 25 52 and first of all congrats to the human race for making it that far i didn't <laughs> think it was i didn't i didn't think you were gonna get there to be honest with you, sitting here in uh, in 2022, <laughs> I'm not 100 percent convinced that you're gonna get there. But in this fictional world, you got there, and I'm and I'm kind of proud of you, even though you you still be colonizing. But that's okay, you know. Okay, it's human nature,
3: and it's yeah. that's why they call it science fiction, baby. It's fictional. <laughs> uh,
2: so the year is 2552. We are on the planet Madrigal, which is part of a uh, unified Earth government territory. It is a uh, colony. Uh, human colonists uh, went out into various far-flung planets of the galaxy where they would then mine for resources or what have you, and they would send that back to the Central Earth government. And over time, uh, the colonists have been like, hey, we're being exploited by you, Central Earth government, and that is the state of affairs today. Magical is a planet rich in exploitable resources populated by a diverse body of very restive human colonists. the UEG's relationship with its outer colonies is is very bad is for anyone who read the uh, first Halo novelizations by Eric Nyland you'll you'll understand where where we're coming from with that. When the colonies act up, when they insurrect, when they rebel against the UEG, uh, the UEG sends in the space Marines, the UNSC, United uh, Nations, security, something, something, I forgot what it was, Marines, and the newly kind of newly created elite force of specially trained and equipped warriors known as the Spartans. They Mm -hmm. are widely feared throughout the colonies, and they are a, a, a subject of much propaganda by the UEG. Uh, so Quan Hall is a colonist. She and her friends are exploring the landscape of Madrigal, um, where the various plants are, uh, are, are rich with heavy hydrogen, which is very useful, apparently, as an energy source and also for drugs. Uh, Quan sees something strange in the woods. She follows it. She sees an alien ship near a cave where there's clearly some sort of mining activity taking place. Kwan is like, OK, like, let's return to the outpost. We have to tell everybody what's happening. And her friends are kind of like, oh, you no, let's not do that, which is crazy. Like, why? Why would they Guys, do that? There's an alien ship mm-hmm. here. I think we need to go back. Uh, and then in that moment, they are attacked by the Covenant who are, uh, we're going to find this out over the course of the series, so minor spoiler, but this is like available information Mm -hmm. if you've ever played a Halo game, which is probably likely. Uh, The Covenant is an alliance of alien races who have bound together for uh, religious reasons. And uh, they uh, are extremely adept and militaristic, and they have plasma weaponry, and you don't want to fuck with them. Quan sends up a flare, warns the outposts, the colonists including Kwan's father, swing Mm -hmm. into action. They arm themselves with, like, this was crazy, with, like, assault weapons, like, from the 21st slash 22nd, like, 300-year-old guns, which I get it. If you're the UEG, you probably don't want your colonists having, like, really good weapons. But (laughs) They are outgunned in an unbelievable fashion. Unbelievable, they just have like antiques out here. Um, so they, all the guns and all that stuff, it doesn't it doesn't matter because the elites are like seven feet tall, mm-hmm. incredibly strong. They have uh energy shields that just turn back the bullets with ease, yeah. and they are armed with plasma weaponry that just melt people. They easily brush the colonials aside. And just as the colonials are being completely wiped out, the UNSC and four Spartans, Soren, Riz, Kai, and the Master Chief, John 117, arrive. And uh, they are badass, so they manage to check the attack. Uh, and it's, uh, it's another victory for the Spartans, minus the fact that every single colonial has been massacred I except mean, for Kwan. So many people. So so it's kind of like it's a it's a you win some, you lose some. But listen, the 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 colony has been defended. <laughs> uh, the Spartans uh, set off to find out where the landing site is. They discover the same cave that Kwan mm-hmm. had found. And inside that cave, there is some sort of alien artifact that the, the, the covenant we're trying to extract. Chief touches it. The device activates with this green light, uh, sending out these uh, interesting lines and patterns. And suddenly inside Chief's mind, uh, something unlocks. And these long buried memories start emerging. And he sees like snippets of like some other planet, uh, a a dog, like uh, some kind of crashed ship. And then Chief snaps out of it. A cloaked elite sprints out of the cave. Knocking down Quan, who has already been through so much today, and now Uh Quan's knocked unconscious by him fleeing elite. The elite escapes. Chief is like, hey, uh, take this alien dropship back to fleet command so they can look into it. I am going... Uh, to go after the elite to see where he went and uh, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get that artifact back and that's what we're doing. And the Spartans are like, are you sure? That's kind of like not procedure. He's like, don't worry about it. I'm the master chief. I order you to do this. <laughs> On reach, uh, which is an important united uh, government world – Ten and a half Light Years from Earth. It's the home of UNSC Fleet Command. We meet Dr. Catherine Halsey, who is a brilliant super genius behind the Spartan Project and other secret programs of which we will soon learn about. Mm-hmm. And if you have read the Halo novelizations or played a Halo game, you probably can figure out where this is going. She sees something in the way uh, that the artifact reacts to the Master Chief. She's watching like the security footage of this. Uh, That interests her. Admiral Paragoski arrives at Halsey's lab, uh, and she is like the big muckety-muck at Fleet Command, and she arrives and she's like, listen— Security Council might just cut your funding uh, because of this Madrigal debacle. Like it doesn't look great. The yes, the Spartans defeated the Covenant, but like all the Colonials are dead. Mm
1: -hmm. And
2: Halsey's like, forget about the Colonials. We don't. We literally don't want to talk about them anymore. Let's talk about this artifact that we that we found on Madrigal. And we learn uh, through this conversation that the UEG has been fighting the Covenant for a long time, but apparently, uh, most colonials don't really, they think that covenant is like a myth. Mm-hmm. And also, after all these years, the UEG has no idea what the covenant want. They have no idea what they want. So maybe this artifact will tell them what they want. This is the first time they've got any kind of indication that the covenant wants something. So they know that they have to get this artifact. Halsey tells Paragoski that, listen, the artifact needs to come to my lab. Mm-hmm. It should not go to the lab of Dr. Miranda Keyes, a rising figure in the UNSC. And spoiler alert— Kind of, well, not really. They say it in the episode. So I'll just tell you. Dr. Halsey's daughter, on her way out, Paragoski tells Halsey to get rid of that. And that turns out to be some kind of clone. Some kind of clone, probably for the Cortana project, but perhaps like trying to restart the Spartan project. What do you think that could be?
3: Yeah, I definitely think, and the thing is, it it looks like it could be a clone of Dr. Halsey. So there's definitely- Younger Halsey. Younger Halsey. So there's come some kind of strange thing here. It could be something more intimate about trying to cure a sickness. That's often like a sci-fi thing. Yeah. You need to replace yourself so your work can go on. Or I think most likely because of the show and how much they're going to- it seems like they're leaning into the like conflicted nature of Master Chief and, and the kind of realities of the Spartan program. I think it's like a, a, going to be a spinoff or a continuation of, of the Spartan
2: program. We then go, shockingly, I must say, to High Charity, mm-hmm. uh, another, another location from the video games somewhere in Uncharted space. This is the Covenant high command mega base the size of a planet. Looks like a gigantic jellyfish. Uh, a Covenant prophet who is is, – prophets are part of the alien alliance and they are basically the leadership class uh, in the Covenant, is discussing with a human woman named Makey. They don't actually say her name in this, but from IMDb, this is cheating, but M-A-K-E-E. So I'm going to say Makey. I think
3: that's right. This this scene, I just need to say, this – We'll talk more about the general show and like the opening really sets this kind of unexpected tone, but it fits into what I kind of what I expected from a Halo show. Lots of action, like really yeah. great creature work. But this scene is so prequel Star Wars. It's so Amadala and it's so deep, hard, bureaucratic sci-fi. And I wasn't really expecting to get that. This and- way-
2: This was the scene that surprised me as well. Yeah. Um, So it apparently, uh, Maki, uh, again, they haven't said her name yet, so I hope that's correct, (laughs) is a a human that apparently was kidnapped by the covenant and raised in their ways. Mm -hmm. So Maki apparently predicted where the artifact would be, and she was right about that. Uh, But not that the Spartans would arrive and foil the plans to snatch it. So the prophet is being very, very, like, Snickety uh, with Maki, and and in fact, downright derisive towards mm-hmm. her. More interestingly, uh, we know that the Covenant has a nickname for Master Chief; they call him a demon. Maki would like to speak to the cloaked Covenant warrior who escaped the cave and witnessed the entire incident and saw that the artifact reacted to Master Chief, with the, which the Covenant find very interesting. Uh, the Prophet then mocks Maki for reading, apparently, like, human literature mm-hmm. in an attempt to know the mind of, of humanity. On Master Chief's condor, uh, Kwan wakes up en route to Reach. She finds the Master Chief staring at the artifact. He's just obsessed with this fucking thing. Yeah, he wants to beam. know
3: about that flashback. Like, he's what this was is that? the conflict. Like, wasn't he just always Master Chief? Who is this right, dog? He, like, what right, is this? Where did, he, where did he come from, you know? And that's that's obviously going to be... The major seed and I kind of think the the nod about Mackie reading like human literature hints that there's going to be some kind of conflict there that's relative of this idea of the covenant and the humans and some kind of important
2: romance Uh I smell a romance across nations two people who might (laughs) not know where they
3: come from who've been adopted by strange classes
2: (laughs) I know I love it um Miranda Keys holograms in to talk to Quan and Ken. She's like, hey, listen, I'm really, really sorry that your dad and everyone you ever knew has been massacred by the Covenant. In front of your Uh, eyes, brutally. That was really tough. But, 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 if you were to, like, get on— the 26th century TikTok and be like, hey, hey, y'all, you know, it was really cool. The Spartans, they came and defended us. And yes, I'm the only survivor, but they did a great job and they are here to protect us. If you would go on, uh, you know, do a media tour and just help us, sell how? what a great job the the Spartans are doing for the colonials, that would really be a help. And Kwan's like, "Mm, no, No. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to sell out like that. She says that if she were to record such a video, she would just say, hey, you know what? The Spartans uh, slaughtered everybody. Mm -hmm. What about that? That's what they did. And if you don't want me to do that, here are my demands. Free Madrigal from UEG Control. And uh, Miranda Keys is like, well, that went badly and hangs up. <laughs> we go back to reach— <laughs> Where Halsey is uh, studying Master Chief's vitals, everything here's, you know how you uh, your iPhone uh, or your device gives you uh, now, hopefully gives you the option to like opt out of all your information being mm-hmm. like sold to various places. The uh, the the Mjolnir armor does not have that you can't turn it (laughs) off everything everything gets sent to UNSC fleet command and Ozzy is studying Master Chief's vitals and she notices that whoa this artifact really did something to Chief like his biology is different somehow and um she notices that curiously Master Chief has not mentioned that he's feeling weird or anything Mm -hmm. so that's a note of concern she speaks with him Uh, asks him about it. He says, listen, I touched the object and I saw stuff. I I saw visions of like maybe my childhood. I saw a dog. And it's clear that Master Chief is very troubled by this. On Reach, Dr. Keyes talks with her dad, uh, Captain Jacob Keyes. I'm just going to call Captain Jacob uh, about Miranda's unsuccessful attempt at diplomacy at diplomacy with Quan. It was bad. Like it it, was not good. It was
3: badly timed. It was like, hey, sorry your friends died, but could you just, like, do some cool propaganda for us, even though we've (laughs) been messing up your lives for, like, years? Yeah, just, like, go straight
2: to camera. Just, like, if you could do uh, just a video something vertical and just go straight to camera. Make some content about this massacre. Meanwhile, meanwhile, while her dad is talking to her about this, they're, like, dissecting covenant bodies Mm -hmm. all around her, which is, like, not the setting to have this conversation. Anyway, Keyes is frustrated that Halsey is— Stymieing her career at every term. and here we learn that uh, to make things even weirder, that's her mom. So okay, that's an issue. Shocking. And then uh, at the end of this cu- uh, conversation, Captain uh, Jacob, her dad, again, just very casually drops the news that hey, uh, we're gonna disappear Quan. What? Yeah, we're gonna liquidate her. What? Yeah, we're gonna assassinate her. What? Yeah, we're gonna exit We're gonna fucking kill her because the story whatever story she has we don't want that to get out mm-hmm. it's just much easier if all the col- the colonists from Magical die and Dr. Keys is absolutely fucking shocked at this it's like honey how long you've been working at the UNSC yep. is what we do you know
3: what it's uh, it's the moment when you realize that they're not going to shy away from the reality which is
2: they are the bad guys like they which are which I love I that's the thing I the the book's go there as well, mm-hmm. because the colonials are restive as well. They have certain demands. The UNSC acts completely ruthlessly towards them. The Spartan program was in fact created and and deployed against human yep. beings uh, if more often than not. Uh, and I'm glad that they went there. Yeah. It's cool that they went there with us. I think it's really interesting, um, and we'll
3: get to kind of the tone and the vibe, but like, I think it's really interesting to take what to a lot of people who haven't necessarily deeply played the games or who haven't read the books, which I'm so going to have to do now. Like, I'm going to need to... <laughs> I think I read the, the first one, but I like. I think I need to go back and read them because I, I feel like this is, must be taking so much inspiration because there's so much depth to this first episode. But um, I think it's really cool that they essentially took something that a lot of people just know as kind of like a shoot 'em up kind of like first-person yeah. shoot, and are like, here's like a Star Trek-level in-depth exploration of this world that you've never seen. And let's talk about what it means to be colonists. And let's talk about what these government agencies will do to survive.
2: I, I really love and am fascinated by the fact that they took a military shooter and mm-hmm. made a show that is very critical of militarism. So that exactly. is very interesting I to me. Exactly. I think it's that's so interesting. That's when it's going to keep me watching at this point. So uh, on the back on Master Chief's ship, Kwan is eating as Master Chief sits there like a weirdo watching. He attempts a little humor. She's like, hey, "Do you want something to eat?" He's like, "Yeah, I eat nuts and bolts and stuff," which is very funny. She's like, "You ever take off your helmet? You know, Mandalorian style." Mm-hmm. And he says, uh, "Like the Mandalorian? No, that's uh, that is the way. Uh, yes, that's a different show, but still, I, I it's got all my you know uh, UI and all the this interface is stuff very in there. So I don't take mandalorian
3: Mandalorianish off. as it well. Is. Like, there's so much." <laughs> Star Wars in the show, but yeah,
2: she's uh, and then she, Quan is like, "Hey, we met. Do you remember that?" And he's like, "No, what was that?" <laughs> and she was like, "So a um, bunch of colonists had got together to talk about like what the UEG was doing and how oppressive they were being, and someone called in a bomb threat, and then the uh, UNSC Marine." Uh, Marine force plus the Spartans responded and they wiped everybody out, including my mom. What do you think about that? And Master Chief is like, oh, uh, I remember that. Yeah, the orders were to kill the leader, but then in the middle of it, the orders changed and it was to kill everyone who was there. And by the way, that is, I might be remembering this wrong. It's been a number of years since I read uh, Reach, the first book in the Halo series, but that is like the opening action mm. scene of Eric Nylund's Halo Reach, if I recall correctly. Anyway uh Master Chief and the rest of the Spartans uh, uh to paraphrase him we're basically just following orders and we all. all know where and,
3: that's happened before and how well right. it is
2: <laughs> and just as he is g- getting done telling her this an order comes across his visor that says liquidate Quan mm-hmm. uh oh and he's like hey what was your name again <laughs> <laughs> he has that double he like uh-huh. does it <laughs> he does a, like a a a a quick double check and he's like you're you're Kwan, right? And she's like, "Yep." He's like, "Okay." Uh, <laughs> on Reach, alarm is growing because it's clear that Master Chief is acting super weird. Rather than kill Kwan immediately, he has killed the video feed from his ship, uh, which is uh, again quite alarming to UNSC headquarters. Halsey tells Paragoski uh, that, and Captain Jacob that she thinks that uh, Master Chief is accessing old memories. Which Paragoski is like, oh shit, like, do we want our ultimate weapons suddenly being, going off script and being like, hey, where did I come from? What have you done? No, we don't want that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Halsey's like, this is exactly why we need the Cortana system to help keep them under control. And Paragoski's like, here you go again, pitching the Cortana system in the middle of an of a <laughs> emergency. Stop cloning and stop talking about Cortana. And she orders Halsey to get Master Chief under control. The UNSC cuts the oxygen level on Master Chief's ship, which is on autopilot, so the idea is they just fall asleep and the ship lands and then we can figure it out. The ship arrives in reach space, but Chief is tough and he can somehow just like brute force himself through uh, oxygen deficiency and he like wakes up and tweaks the atmospheric controls on the ship and now everybody's able to breathe. Paragoski orders a full military response to meet the Chief when he lands, but Halsey very, very, uh, very, very mischievously supersedes the order directly to the Spartan squad. She tells the Spartans, hey, new orders for you guys. Protect Master Chief no matter what. Whoever's Mm -hmm. trying to harm him doesn't matter. You protect Chief. And they're like, does that mean like UNSC Marines? And uh, Halsey's like, figure it out, genius. And they're like, (laughs) okay, that makes UNSC Marines. (laughs) Yeah, what do you think? Mm -hmm. Back on the ship, Quan pulls a battle rifle on Chief. Uh, my favorite weapon from the Halo video game series, as I'm sure I'm not alone in that. And Chief is like, listen, uh, I, like the, I like the Moxie, but that thing's not even going to scratch me. I'm like under an energy shield. Under that is like uh, multiple layers of titanium. Under that is some other fucking futuristic shit. There's no way you can even hurt me with that. So stop it. Then he takes off his helmet and he's like... This is my face. You may have recognized me from season two of The Wire on the docks
1: <laughs> with Frank Also
3: in a very terrifying <laughs> right, right role. Right <laughs> my,
2: my name is Pablo Schreiber. You've seen me in other stuff. American Gods. Here's the, right. Here's the, American gods also. here's the deal. The UNSC wants to kill you, and I'm trying to protect you. Now, do you want to put that three burst into my face, or do you want to live? Mm-hmm. And Quan's like, Ooh, I want to live. Okay. So first things first, we need to disconnect— disconnect the uh, the AI control of the ship and Quan does that by shooting it so Master Chief then uh, takes off but then the UNSC cannons knock the Condor out of the sky the ship is surrounded by Marines and Spartans, they're about to break into the ship but then Master Chief, here he goes again, he's just mm-hmm. obsessed with this artifact he can't stop thinking about it he looks at it on the ground and he touches it and more memories come to the fore now he sees people's faces different things, snippets of rooms and more stuff. And the artifact releases a pulse and Fleet Command loses power. But interestingly, the Condor gets Mm -hmm. powered up and Master Chief snaps out of it. He says, buckle up. We're out of here, folks. And they fly away. Hyperspeed. we are off (laughs) into episode two. So, Rosie, your thoughts on episode one of Halo?
3: It was... Very different than I thought it was going to be.
2: Same. And the more same, I think same, of same it, same, I same.
3: actually think that's like a good thing. I think it. I think it's really hard to adapt something that is so much about the player's experience, which is, you know, the problem with every video game, but specifically a game like this where you are in the space and world and mind and, uh, and also like... How much of the narrative people know of Halo is to do with how much they commit to it. So for some people yeah. that they don't, and I actually thought that it was really interesting and weird and slow burny, and also as well, like the production value was really great. I agree. It this it looks so uh, good.
2: I, so I'm watching. We're watching it on screeners. Okay, so episode one of the screener that we they gave us the first two. I've only seen the first one. Yeah, is it's clear that the VFX are are not quite all the way polished, but it still looks incredible. Yeah. Like the the uh, the practical effects, explosions, the battle scenes, the elites themselves, like there's just some like minor textual stuff that I'm. It's clear mm-hmm. that they're going to fill in, but like Reach looks incredible. Yeah, High Charity looks incredible. Like all the stuff looks amazing. Something that I think is really cool that I that I enjoyed a lot about this that
3: I think was something I didn't really get from the trailers. I think a lot of stuff that came out uh, Halo. You know, a lot of the movies a lot of this stuff that came out in this era was very, like, orange. It had that color <laughs> grading of, you know, war and sand and barren and the green of Master Chief and stuff. But this, there's so many... We get that classic opening. Like, the opening is kind of very Star Wars, Star trek where you really get the feeling of the colonists yeah. before you see them being massacred, sadly. But I... I just thought they actually did such a good job of showing all these different worlds and spaces and they all looked so different and were so visually easy to follow that even though when you're describing it, it's like, then they're there, then they're there. But you know from the cinematography, from the production design, you immediately know where you are once you've been there one time.
2: Yeah, I I completely agree. And and again, like I'm a big fan of Starship Troopers. Mm -hmm. Me too, I love it. As a... Like a satire of militarism that and fascism that is so finely tuned that I think probably the majority of people who watch yeah. that movie are just when, like this is a great just action movie when it like, came I out I will think nothing deeper of
3: it yeah you know I have a name I have a nameplate necklace like people get of their names and mine says Beethoven <laughs> because I love Paul Beethoven <laughs> so much and when that movie came out people hated it. People were like, it. this is military fascist propaganda, which is what the book it's based on was. But yeah. actually, it's such a searing, fucking brilliant, brutal satire. And every time you watch it, it still feels absolutely relevant. And I definitely, I definitely like that this, this is not as funny. Starship Troopers is like hilarious. Yeah. But I hilarious. love that this has that same intention of examining the idea of like a militarized action show and and what it means to be a militarized force i think it's it's a really interesting and unexpected yeah route. i love that
2: I love that too. I and it's kind of got this iron giant feel mm-hmm. to it of we've lost control of our weapons. Yeah. You know, our, our we've made this ultimate weapon, high tech. It is our last hope to like turn mm-hmm. back the tide of whatever, whatever, whatever. And yes, we are suspending space civil liberties and oppressing our colonies. And we order have to fight to this it. fight. But we have to do it. But then to lose control of the weapon, because the weapon is like, is this is this the right way to be doing yeah. this? Is I love stories Need like to, that. And so I'm on the hook. I also think I, that I, you, some one of the moments
3: that you said that's like, I think is actually really smart in retrospect is like, how Master Chief can wake up when they turn down the oxygen levels. It's like, don't be surprised. You literally built him to be like immortal, in, infallible. Like, and now what happens when that thing that you created to destroy other people, to destroy this, a, you know, how many, you know, we're talking about video games, like, what about, you know, I'm not saying this is the route that this is going to go, but I love the implication of like, that kind of, um, did you ever play that PlayStation 1 game, Shadow of the Colossus?
2: Oh, my right, God. Right, so the whole time. Let me, first of all. Yeah. Yes. Of course.
3: <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> uh, Shadow
2: of the Colossus, for those of you who don't know, is a game uh, by, by, uh, by, one of the great tours of video games, Fumito Ueda. And it is about a person who rides around this beautiful, like fantastical landscape and is, uh, that person's mission is to like kill these massive, very gentle beasts. But like, we think, the thing you know, that, you're meant to think because you're, it's a monster because
3: yeah. you're playing a video game, right? It's a right. monster and you are the person, you've got to kill them. And, and you realize at the end that, that you are the bad guy. You are not hero. You are the bad guy. You're killing
2: these these gentle giants that are just like chilling in fields. Yeah, and are then- like
3: part of the the natural order of things. They're these beautiful... And that is yeah. like one of the most visceral versions of that story that I think of so often. And I definitely feel like there's something interesting in what they're seeding here, where it's like Master Chief recontextualizing the people that he's meant to be killing and and realizing that there's a humanity to everyone. And and that's really, I mean, obviously Pablo Schreiber, he's, he's doing the Master Chief thing. It looks incredible. The suit is like absolutely a, perfect.
2: A, a, a perfect. But perfect.
3: Yerin Ha, who plays uh, Quan Ha, I think that's the, that's the human heart of the show. And I think I agree. even though, you know, her whole family got fridged and her whole community, I think that it's <laughs> very smart to do that kind of, man, it's like, you know, it's the buddy, it's the buddy unexpected team up. It's the 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 revolutionary and the military yes. man. It's it's a little bit Mandalorian-ish, but you know, there's no child. It's just like it's Hidden Fortress. It's the two people who team up. It's a hero's journey. And and Yerenha is so good. Like when she was
2: She's great. Doing She's this. She's
3: great. The Quanha did this like when she does the the speech to the doctor and she's saying, she's like, you know what? I'm just going to tell them that you did it. And she's so right. unhinged and angry and you're just like, yeah, I wouldn't even blame you. Like, they have their you. propaganda and you have yours. So I think that this added an unexpectedly kind of human element that I wasn't, I don't think that that would have been the story that got told if this show got Same made here. 10 I was years not- ago.
2: I 100% was not expecting them to take this angle on it. And so that is the thing that will keep me watching because I'm really fascinated. I'm glad you brought up Shadow of the Colossus. Uh, Let's talk about some of our favorite video games. I I just want to say about Shadow of the Colossus. One of the reasons why I think Ueda is brilliant and that game in particular is brilliant is that – so one of the mechanics of that game – is you have to climb these massive colossi, right, and then kill them. And killing them involves, like, following this, like, pattern of of button prompts, like a uh, circle. Yeah, almost like a rhythm like, game. Yeah, it'll be like circle, triangle, triangle, circle, triangle, triangle. And it'll be that, these these strings of patterns for minutes and minutes and minutes. And you're like, why am I doing this? Why is this so hard? Why, like, why is this boss fight like this? The reason it's like that is the game is making you complicit in the murder of these. Constantly,
3: and for a long time, like even as you're there and you're thinking, why is it taking so long? Why do I have to press all these buttons? You don't stop doing it. Right. You just do it because it's what the game is telling you to do. It's what you were ordered to do. You are, oh, it's a monster. I have to kill it. That's the nature of video games. and,
2: And that creates this really really like Unique emotional feeling Mm -hmm. of it's one of the saddest games I've ever played in my life. When you have the realization, yeah, of what is happening. That yeah, Yeah.
3: that's the power I think of those video video games rather than film and TV. And obviously, we love film and TV so much. And you know, I had nothing better than sitting in a cinema and feeling like you're immersed in that world. But in video games, you become complicit. You take the actions and you make the choices. It's the ultimate pick your own ending story.
2: What are you are you playing anything right now?
3: <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I yeah. I do have like a, a next gen system that I that I do intend to get Elden Ring on. But
2: this, I can't wait for you to yeah, play I'm, it. Yeah, I'm
3: I'm so excited for it and I know it's going to be really hard. Like I any any mission based game but that allows you to kind of roam and do your own thing. I am the roaming and doing my own thing person. I literally
2: good news there's yeah so I, I, am, I
3: will never finish the game i still good, yeah. haven't fully completed breath of the wild simply because all i do is oh, go wow. and cook i just i i'm very far and i could finish it if i want but i just play it and every time i'm like well i could do this last boss or i could just like <laughs> i could just go and cook some food and like you know ride a deer and and i love that notion of it but but i have not yet done it for two reasons. There, I love my Switch. I'm like the number one Nintendo Switch big, fan. Big Switch fan as well. I love it. And there were two games. There's a game called Ollie Ollie World, which is a skateboarding platformer that is just Ooh. so addictive. And the art style is really beautiful. It's absolutely inspired by Pendleton Ward and Adventure Time. And it has the most incredible... You could just spend like three hours just modding your character, because it's got so many different unbelievable options. You can have all different kinds of looks and and skin tones and hairstyles and tattoos. And then it's basically like a really simple, but really, really tricky game where you can play it kind of like Tony Hawk, where you can get mm. a number of points, but you've always got to finish the course. So that, and then I was like, okay, well, I've played that a lot and I, st- I'll, I'll, I love indie games. I'll always go back to it. And I was like, I'll get Elden Ring. And then if you have the Switch Online expansion pack, which obviously I got for Animal Crossing because I love Animal Crossing. And I'm I, I, a big fan of yeah, Animal Crossing as well. They just uploaded, I think like, well, they uploaded two new sets of Mario Kart courses <laughs> that have, are absolutely new for Mario Kart 8, which is eight new, eight new tracks. Uh, I'm well aware. So that's it. That's just my life. I absolutely I love, love it. it. I love Mario Kart. And I was like, why won't they make a new Mario Kart? But now I'm like, Oh, because they can just keep making new tracks for this, and I will happily take those new tracks, those free new tracks. I know for you, it's only about one game.
2: So tell me. Well, right now I'm playing so much Elden Ring. Yeah, I am. <laughs> uh, I've not been a big Demon Souls, Bloodborne mm. person, which is the the, the uh, FromSoft, uh, the publisher. Those are their previous games, and kind of. Uh, 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 games that were created under the stewardship and direction of Hidetaka Miyazaki, who's also directed the Solo series. So this game is, like, in the lineage of those games. But it, veteran uh, born players will tell you that this is the easiest version. Um, I don't know about that. It is still, st- like, early game is so hard. It's so hard, Rosie. It's like, everything can fucking kill you. Little animals are beating your ass. <laughs> and... Here's the thing. So th- this game is it's extremely popular and it's yeah. extremely great. What do I love about Everyone it? Everyone I know. I love, what do I love about it? I love that um, it's like Breath of the Wild. There is a feeling of the thrill of exploration, of just mm. finding new dungeons, new corners of the map, new places, beautiful places. And really... That's how to progress in the game because the very first thing that happens in the game is you come out of the tutorial like catacombs mm-hmm. and you're presented with this huge knight on a steed that you can't beat. You can't beat him. Maybe if you're a veteran Soulsborne player, maybe you, you can beat him. But like 100% you can't fight this thing. And yeah. so your only uh, your only option is to go off and explore and through that exploration you can level up and eventually be able to fight these various bosses. So it's that kind of feeling of what else is there to explore. I'm like I don't know how many hours I'm into this game but there has I'm there's still a whole section of the map that I haven't unlocked yeah, yet. Yeah, you
3: you were saying in Austin you were on like level 77 or something, and it was still so hard. Like, you hadn't leveled past the hard part.
2: I'll tell you right now, I'm level, uh, right now, uh, 98, and I'm still getting my ass kicked. (laughs) Um, it's it's interesting because there's this whole discourse has come up around this game. Part of what makes these games so difficult is there is, there can. It, it, how to play them is very opaque. There's mm-hmm, all these features mm-hmm. and tips and tricks that you really rely on the community to tell you. Uh, there's all these secret buffs and uh, secret debuffs that you can get by like hugging NPCs and different things and different ways to like make your stuff, your 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 like weaponry and your uh and your power set like work better. But that's not explained to you, yeah. and so. This is a real feature of these kind of games, and also like players can leave little messages for yes, you in the game. I was like here, say. look here, there's like a secret passage here, and sometimes those are fakes. So what's been interesting is there was this whole discourse. Some publishers, some of the people, the devs that worked on another game that got released that is also very good that I'm not going to talk about, but they're in America. Were like, uh, oh, you know, why do people like this? Why is this? It's so weird. Like taking shots at this game kind of like at a at – a, mm-hmm. not directly, but at a weird angle being like, oh, it's this huge landscape, but it's so empty and like the UI is not good. Like you don't – it doesn't tell you all the stuff on the screen. And I agree with that to an extent. But the thing this game does – and this is a hallmark of the kind of – not to like – not to bundle all Japanese game devs together, okay? But like similar to Shadow of the Colossus, there's a thing that Elden Ring does – that is kind of like this uh, where they use the mechanics to kind of like enhance a philosophy. And Mm -hmm. the philosophy is, from my perspective, ask the other people playing how to play. Yes, I... It's And so so that's what the philosophy is. Don't ask us, ask the other players. Create this community. Mm -hmm. And through that, you will discover how to play. And I... And whereas the more Western style is, here's everything you need, right? Yeah. Uh, and also, like if you need more stuff, you need to be better at it. Here's a, you can mi- do microtransactions. Oh yeah, can you can stuff. pay. You can pay. They give you this. Uh, Elden Ring gives you everything you need. You just need to know. You need to ask other people. I love and that. And I think and there's something really. Uh, it sounds hokey, but there's something I think really cool about that. No, I was I do. watching. Let me. Uh, I want to. I want to shout out this creator. Hold on a second because I forgot what his name is. Like I've been watching um videos by I'm not I'm not gonna pronounce this right, but I'm just gonna say the creator's name on YouTube is Vati Vidya. So it's V-A-A-T-I-V-I-D-Y-A. And this person like has a ton of content like dealing with Bloodborne, with demon souls and now Elden Ring. And this person creates truly beautiful content that like really enhances the mythology and the wonderful like magic feeling of exploring the game and the fact that that elden ring the creator of elden rings the the, the the from software the publisher and bandai namco like the fact that like they are empowering other creators to create mm-hmm. this stuff mm-hmm. around it they are saying hey go and seek out these people because they will help you play the game, I think is really cool. And it's part of what I find so magical about this game. I
3: also think, like, it actually takes from... People might not remember this because we're both kind of old and, like, gaming has changed a lot. But, like, it's like the old days. Like, we had to to communicate with each other to get cheat codes, to get extra lives. You had to have the friend who knew... What the cheat code was for the specific really weird niche we get, and you always had that one friend, or you know you would you would have the one friend, or you'd all chip in to buy the giant game guide, you know, and then you'd yes, know all the, the different Nintendo cheats power and or whatever. Exactly. Yes. and I kind of love that. Yeah, I didn't really know that was such an active part of AAA games until Death Stranding, where they were literally yeah. allowing people to build new objects and I just I I love it's like what we talk about with comics all the time I love the conversation between creators and fans and fans and fans so and that's actually what keeps this stuff alive so to me that just I, I love that that's an aspect of the game because I actually think that's the joy of it is that's why we do this podcast that's why we yes. love the people who listen to it that's why the people want to listen to it is because it's just people talking about stuff they love and if you can and it's even better if that is a reward based. Like if you're if you're like I'm talking to you about this, and guess what? Now you can you know not die for ten minutes longer because yes. <laughs> because I learned something. What do you know? And you can like share that. I actually think that's really cool. I love that aspect.
2: And it's a beautiful game. Like if yeah, you like *Breath of the stunning. Wild*, then you will enjoy this game. Uh, just when you get frustrated, just explore. That would be my one little hint. Yeah. Okay. Now people a lot. Uh, now for the slightly bummer part of this conversation, <laughs> which people people have been asking, hey, are you going to play Hogwarts Legacy? Are you going to play it? What do you think about it? How does it look? And listen, I've watched all the videos. I have watched the videos. Uh, inclu- there's some more recent ones of, of the more finished build. It looks great. It looks A. The magic system looks really cool. Um, that said... Yeah. Rosie, I don't know how you feel. I'll no. say how I feel. I uh because of JK's history of transphobia semi recent you can't even call yeah, it's it recent not history anymore, her, she's, her, been doing this. her she's been doing this for now for several years now um i just uh i can't give her any more money that's Me it neither. that's it's really that simple like i've given her a lot of money i i've uh i have been I've been part of a community mm-hmm. of fans that mm-hmm. loves these stories um, but I just can't, in good conscience, give her any more money. And I've got like a lot of games that I could do, that I could easily play. Whatever other people want to do, that is their business. But I don't. I yeah. just feel like I can't. I no, I totally agree with you. It's it's a uh, it's a
3: it's a huge disappointment. I think for lots of people. For, yeah. Like it's it's one of those things that we're both people who not only have we like loved Harry Potter and, and been Love part it. of amazing communities, but like that's part of why we get to do this. Because, we yeah, J- Jason's got his wand, my one's back there. Like, the, <laughs> this is part of why we get to do this for our job, which is yeah. amazing, is because that was something that we spoke about or we talked about or we kind of shared with people, you know? But I'm the same. I, I can't, I don't get any, now, not only uh, ethically do I not want to support, but I don't get any love out of it. I, I can't ignore it. I can't separate it. It's really hard. It. And, yeah, um, I can't.
2: I couldn't. It's couldn't.
3: active. It's It's harmful, especially in the wake of the kind of, transphobic uh, laws and anti-LGBTQIA plus laws that are going yes. across. That is at, having a massive platform and spreading that kind of hatred.
2: Yeah. It just the leads, amount of violence that that community it, faces. And it, and it creates more violence. higher rate of violent death. Yeah. Like it's just, it's actually not, in any way cool no I and, couldn't I couldn't you know give her more money
3: and and there is plenty of like you said there's magical amazing games especially I think like the switch for me really changed my life and I've never really been a pc gamer so so the switch has changed my life because now there's all these incredible indie games made by queer oh, creators yeah. made by trans creators and you can just access them on the switch the switch has incredible sales like I got Spiritfarer, which is easily one of my favorite games of all time. Great game. Unbelievable. I got it in a Switch sale. It's a beautiful game about death and grieving. And it's kind of this incredible platformer. And it has the most unbelievable explorations of love and different kinds of love and different kinds of people. And it is just so wonderful. And to me, I'm like... I love AAA gaming, and it's so exciting. And I've gotten much better—I have terrible hand-eye to coordination, and I sucked at video games <laughs> when I was a kid.
2: But I've lost my step.
3: now. You know, I'm 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 doing better. So you know what? I'm lucky. I'm an adult. I get to make my own decisions. That's not something either of us are going to decide to support.
2: Before we move on, have you played Celeste? Yes, yeah. play
3: I actually. Yeah, I uh, yeah, Celeste. I, I almost got to write something very cool about that game. A what project that never happened, but that's another a brilliant game about mental health, depression, yes. one anxiety. Of the, I,
2: I think one of the most profound statements about mental health mm-hmm. in a popular format ever Unbelievable. is the video game Celeste, which is an an extremely hard but rewarding in its hardness platformer with I think one of the one of the great like. Uh, original soundtracks in a video game ever. This really cool, like electro indie uh, uh, soundtrack by Lena rain. If you have a switch and I think it's available actually in the, in in the, uh, in the game stores of most major consoles, Celeste, great story, beautifully told, wonderful art, great music. Try it out. Uh, Next up. Let's talk. What do you say we talk to uh, the the great, the legendary Grant Morrison?
3: I mean, is there
2: anything there? <laughs> no, there's not. Let's do it.
0: On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is hard.
2: I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan.
0: Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Ready PG 13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13.
2: Welcome to the Hive Mind, where we explore a topic in greater depth with the help of an expert guest. Today, folks, let's get right to it. The legendary, the legendary, the iconic, incredibly influential Grant Morrison.
3: Grant, it's so good to see you, and thank you so much for coming. It's just yes, so wonderful. Oh,
2: you're welcome.
4: I see. I see this. I see this camera movement. It's pretty cool. But sorry, <laughs> yeah. sorry, Rosie. Sorry, no, go. go for it. I? <laughs>
3: it's a it's a freewheeling conversation, so yeah, the moving yeah. camera is a. It definitely it.
4: adds to that. Definitely adds <laughs> to that spinning Hitchcockian view. <laughs>
3: it's our fourth guest. I mean, it's our second yeah. guest, or four of us. <laughs> but yeah, um, something we talk about a lot on here because we like love comics. Like, I make comics. Jason's a writer. Mm-hmm. We, we love reading them. What's kind of your comic book origin? What was the thing that made you love comics?
4: I just, I was a, a little kid in, in the 60s, and comics were always about. And I was lucky enough that my, my mother was into science fiction, so she was a huge uh, fan of sort of uh, science fiction paperbacks and all those you know kind of fifties, sixties, all the really cool stuff. So I had that around the house. I was very into the imagery, though I didn't particularly like the, the the books, but comics were there as well. And it was my uncle Billy, particularly, who was the same guy who got me into the occult later. But he had this huge family and cats and dogs and rabbits and stuff, and they they. Had comic books about all the all the time, so it was it was the Flash was the one that I always remember. Mm. Mm. I mean, the first the first comic I remember from when I was like three years old was a was actually a Marvel man, a British thing, you know, the the one yeah. that Alan Moore eventually yeah. did that became Miracle Man. But it was the very early stuff, the Mick Anglo Marvel Man, and I remember that it was it was Marvel Man meets Baron Munchausen, and it was just <laughs> this mad no, it was this mad story. <laughs> I
1: love that, and it's
4: got like you know, there's that he ties his donkey to this kind of like, hitching post, and then in the morning all the snow is melted, and the donkey's hanging off the spider, the local steeple kind of thing, <laughs> and it was just, it was all these weird. Uh, these weird Baron Munchausen stories, but with Marvel Man involved in it. So that was that was the one that stuck in my mind. And that idea of the costume, the Superman, you know, seemed kind of intriguing. Mm-hmm. But it was the it was the flash for me, really. I found these ones when I was starting to get a bit more, you know, a bit older as a kid, like six or seven. And the, the Flash comics just really fascinated me. They were just so wild and psychedelic and mm, colorful. And yeah. I just loved the idea that you could move at super speed. And of course, if you moved at super speed, you would wear that costume, you know, and yeah. it's like the <laughs> best, the, just the best costume in comics, the best boots ever invented, you know? So I, I kind of aesthetically, I, I love the Flash. I love the, the the rounded buttocks of the Flash and the, the <laughs> runner's <laughs> muscles, you know, and just yes. this the sleekness of the whole thing. And, so that, that was it, and from there it was kind of, I remember things like Legion of Superheroes and stuff, mm. but, but it wasn't until I was 12 years old and I, I was in hospital for an appendix operation, and uh, my aunt Ina, who was Billy's wife, brought me in a big ton of comics, and that was it, I became hooked at that minute, I and mean, they just, they kind of got me through that whole hospital experience, and I was just so into it i remember it was action comics superboy and flash Mm. were the three that Mm. really did it for me so so that was my kind of origin then i became just the classic fanboy you know like visiting (laughs) every every store in glasgow me and my my friends would sort of get together and we'd just do these like super like like 40 mile walks you know to find every comic store in the vicinity (laughs) because we didn't have dedicated stores back then Mm
1: -hmm. so
4: you would have to go to every local news agent or you know whatever whatever, drugstore or whatever you'd call it and they all had different comics because the distribution was so sporty we just we Mm -hmm. just kind of got whatever came in on on the on the ships so you would find all kinds of different versions of that month's comic books and it was really it was kind of exciting you know you'd walk for miles and Come home with this haul, and sometimes it would be really boring, and sometimes you just get some of the best comics ever. So that that was it for me, you know. Once once I was a teenager, I got really into the whole collecting and, and fanboyish mm. kind of aspect of it, and then just came about the, the notion of I always wanted to write. I love drawing, so mm. wouldn't it be great to do comic books? I'm kind of trying to pursue that. Unfortunately, I, I, I was young at the time the British invasion happened. And um, the American editors were coming here to, to kind of find people to do their work. So I was in the right place at the right time to do something that I love to do. When I, when I think
2: about the comics that you write, there is uh, often a, a self-referential quality, a quality of, a, of these are created by a comics reader mm-hmm. who understands the character and is in some way... Uh, commenting on the image of the character through the story? Was that always something you were going for? Or did that just kind of happen organically as you were embarking on your writing career?
4: I guess it, it happened as I got into it. But for me, it's honestly, it's a, a literalism that will eventually be revealed as some kind of weird ADHD or something. Yeah. But <laughs> it, was a, I mean, it was just a super literal approach to it, which I thought was 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 useful to me, was to to just think, What's the actual artifact? What is the mm-hmm. the what is the exchange going on between me and the writer of a comic? It's very different from books or from cinema, you know. On on television or cinema, you can kind of the director tells you what to do. You know, you're taking through mm-hmm. it's a two-hour movie. It's it's a 50-minute drama, and you kind of have to stay with it. You know, it's possible to stop and start, mm-hmm. but not in the way with a comic. It's super integrated you know the experience Mm. that the writers and the artists bring to you it's tactile you're holding it you turn the pages you can go backwards and forwards you can if you've stuck in a bit of the story you can go back and really stare at an image yeah in a way that you don't do with any other format so for me that became the interesting thing is the actual the physicality and the 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 actual reality of what is superman superman Mm. is a collection of thousands of thousands of pages that when assembled creates this concept of a character and even though that character's personality has changed radically in the, in the 80 or so years he's been around i think everyone still agrees there's something about it that we all understand to be superman it's not yeah. just the sign it's not just the costume or the colors there's an essential character that's somehow accreted over all that time so i became fascinated by that that not In the way that, you know, I think some of my peers would be interested in telling stories about what if it was real, you know, or what if the Marvel Universe actually existed, but it's Earth 616, you know, it's over there somewhere. Whereas to me, it was never over there, it was right here. You could hold it, you could Mm. collect all those books and have the entire Marvel Universe in a room if you wanted. And that was the real Marvel (laughs) Universe. It was physical, it was touchable, it was tangible. And it developed through decades and it took like hundreds or potentially but now thousands of people who would Mm -hmm. give up their time and their their creativity to sustain this this hyper object so for me that honestly became the fascinating thing and it was to take it super literally and to then think what is what am I doing here I'm not necessarily telling stories although I am telling stories the stories also have to take into account the fact that the characters exist as these bizarre thought forms that have outlived me and will outlive, you know, Scott Snyder and will outlive, you know, Frank Miller. It's like they're bigger than us and in what way are they bigger than us? So the stories also then had to kind of address that. And I think it's what you see in my work that people call metafiction, but I don't even think it's metafiction. It's a much more concretized attempt to Mm. grapple with the object. And the way the characters express themselves through these specific objects and how we relate to that you know there's a lot going on that we we (laughs) took for granted just just reading comics you know and the exchange of information and the way we allow people into our heads who may have very different politics or ideas but we just let them straight in there so as you can see that became a a huge field of interesting uh of exploration for me was just that relationship And it it meant that they were real because I couldn't deal with them. I didn't want to just write fantasy stories of what would it be like if you lived in New York and Spider-Man was there. Mm -hmm. That's meaningless because I'm never going to go to New York and Spider-Man's there. It's utterly meaningless. (laughs) But as a concept that we have created internally inside our universe, a simulation where Spider-Man has played out this immense, you know, over decades, and he's adapted his, his continuity in order to constantly seem fresh. And going, what the hell is that? What is that organism? <laughs> and then that was, that was it. So, I mean, long answer, like, sorry, convoluted. But that's how I came at it, was trying to, to actually have a, a relationship with it that was very real and that, that treated the, the characters as real as treated the ideas in it as mm. having a longevity that was beyond human, and so what did that make them? Like, you know, put them almost in the realm of of gods or of ideas that have outlasted generations and, and gone mm. on for hundreds or thousands of years. And that was that's always been my kind of point of contact and what I wanted to explore.
3: Yeah, I I remember I once uh, did like a, a comics writing class with Mike Carey, and he talked about the mm. X Men in that way, where he basically said, "This is." if somebody found every single issue of the X-Men, they would think this was like the Iliad. They would think this was this huge human story that had been going on for... for, So what was it like for you as a a fan and a cartoonist and a writer when you started, when you had that realization that you were adding to that mythology and you were kind of part of that ongoing puzzle? How did that feel?
4: Well, it felt very interesting to say the least you know it was amazing you know i was young i was 27 i think when i started on animal man and uh, that was my first attempt to explore that that's when i really get into it. you can see those first few issues of me trying to do what was a traditional kind of superhero yeah deconstruction of the day you know a frank miller Alan Moore kind of well what if it was real you know it'd be a bit like this and I lost all interest in that very quickly. So by issue, <laughs> issue five, no, and it's not. I mean, I'm not trying to be rude about anyone. People have explored that. That's, no, no, it's just your own taste. Yeah, very clear from them. Run. Yeah, no, absolutely. But people have explored. You know, what would it be like to be what psychologically? What would it be like? And honestly, my one feeling is like that seems like dilettante of relevant questions because mm-hmm. the the only form they exist is here. So what do they do? What's the function here? What? How did you know? So that. So I was kind of with, with Animal Man, I began to explore that. And it was quite primitive then, you know, I sent in a little drawing of myself. And, you know, the artist didn't quite understand the clothes I was wearing. So I look like I'm wearing these Cossack kind of clothes. And I'm doing this, <laughs> the first page you see me, I'm on my chair doing this kind of Cossack Russian dance. It's amazing. So, But this was this was this little thing I, I sent in there. And it was what I later came to call a fiction suit, and it was the idea. Well, okay, these characters exist, but I can create a representation of myself and actually talk to them, mm. and actually go and have dialogues. And even though it's like they're responding, obviously I'm writing animal's words, but I'm trying to give it that as much autonomy. In my head, I'm thinking, okay, if this guy's real, I've spent twenty-five issues establishing a personality. He's got a family. He's into this kind of music. He likes this kind of food. What would his answer to this question be? So trying to give him as much autonomy as a character and thinking, okay, I'll just accept. If if buddy's mad at me, then I'm gonna deal with that. If he's if he questions what I've got to say, I'll deal with that. And again, trying to always give the characters the dignity of of outlasting me. You know, I was 27 yeah. when I did it. I, I was younger than him now, now I'm mm. double his age. And he'll like, outlive me, the bastard. It's like i <laughs> you dance from my grave. So what am I talking to there? What is the scale mm. of the the creature the entity expressed through the pages so again i keep bringing it back to the esoteric but that's that's what i was going with it animal man was quite a a simplistic way of doing that it was like send in a little drawing of yourself and talk to the characters and mm-hmm. make them understand that you're aware of your spatial uh, geometrical dimensional relationship to them but that you're not necessarily privile- privileging yourself in relation to them Mm -hmm. and see what happens, you know, see what happens. I mean, have Animal Man, I can see you. And I think that moment is still powerful. Because it's real, it's a real moment. I wrote him to really see out of that comic book. So that actually happened to that character, and he had that moment, and that's what makes him who he is.
2: You started with Animal Man in 88, so this is uh, post-Crisis on Infinite Earths, kind of a reset for DC, and... Uh, And it was in retrospect, a pretty audacious choice at um, a character who I think everybody would agree was, you know, a kind of like a, a minor character in the firmament of DC. And then you do this really original kind of mind bending reflection on a character that not a lot of people had thought about. What was it that made you uh, decide, okay, animal man, that's, that's the character I want to explore right now at this stage of my career.
4: No, I mean, I, honestly, it, it, it was the obscurity, I think, of Animal Man mm. was the number mm. one thing. And as as I say, the Vogue at the time was to p- pick up characters who weren't necessarily DC's A-list. And they were kind of throwing them at British writers, you know. To, Alan Moore had had very big success, like making Swamp Thing work yeah. in a completely yeah. new way. And... So, the, you know, Neil Gaiman came in and he took what had been Jack Kirby's Sandman mm-hmm. and does yeah. Sandman, you know. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <so laughs> they, were, they were kind of realising that we, we knew what we were talking about. So, But as I say, the Vogue was very much, to can you take a character from our catalogue that just hasn't worked for maybe 20 or 30 years right. and do you see any potential in that? Mm-hmm. So I knew that was, I knew that's the way they were coming to it. And I always had this fascination with Animal Man. I just, I, 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 I love animals. I was a big thing about animals since I was a kid. And here was this character who could do this. And it seemed a very unique power that a lot of other characters didn't have. It was really specific. It was easy to understand, but he hadn't really made a big splash. And I also loved it because he started as a, a My Greatest Adventure story. So it wasn't even a superhero story. It was a story mm-hmm. about just this dude who goes out one day and gets animal powers. So I kind of <laughs> loved that as well. It grounded him a lot more. Maybe yeah. it was like you, could, you could imagine the movie, that one, you know, that one he just puts on a costume. So going into it, it, was just yeah, I've got an idea about that and I don't think, you know, Karen Berger or Dick Giordano or, or Jeanette Campbell have even heard the name Animal Man in the last Twenty years, you know, <laughs> it's like when Neil Neil walked in with black black orchid, and they said, "Who black, <laughs> no, black orchid?" So they, I think, in a lot of ways, they didn't know what kind of characters they had, and as long as they had yeah. the right really interesting pitch, then at the time, the the, the 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 desire for novelty was such that we had a really good opportunity to do these things. So yeah, I just I pitched them on that, and I didn't have the the the, the so-called fictional aspect at that time. But also the, the, the secondary thing that I loved was the animal rights mm, thing. And yeah. again, but, but again, it was part of the old thinking because Swamp Thing was very much an eco-comic, you know. Yeah. I, I loved that aspect of it. So I thought, well, let's do this specifically because, you know, I'm, a, I'm an Animal Liberation Front supporter back in the days before it was illegal and all <laughs> that stuff. And, you know, hunt, hunt saboteur stuff, the whole thing. So I thought, here's my chance to do what alan's doing with swamp thing you know the, mm-hmm. the eco thing but i'll talk specifically about animal rights and all this stuff that i'm I'm kind of involved in so that was the secondary big thing with animal man and as i say it was only when i got to issue five and i thought oh, i just don't want to do this
1: mm-hmm. eco
4: swamp thing kind of poetic caption stuff so what can <laughs> i do and that became like let's just do it you know and I thought people people will hate this if you put yourself in the comic they're going to hate it they're going to just you'll spoil the magic you I just knew that was that's what I wanted to talk about and I thought what I'm talking about is the actual reality of this DC universe and I think ultimately that people will find that interesting
3: and they I mean they did and, and that's become the 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 author and in the books, the death of the author sometimes physically on the page has become such a yeah, big yeah. comic book trope now. So, you really, you, and obviously, like, I, I love the, that Animal Man kind of this, these, these pictures gave everyone this freedom to do this wild kind of esoteric stuff. Mm-hmm. But then, like, a year later, you, you were like doing Batman <laughs> with Arkham Asylum. Yeah. So, like, what was it like to go from this? One of the you talk about the the kind of godly nature the the immortals of comics these kind of new mythology. Mm-hmm. What was it like from basically getting to introduce a generation of people to Animal Man to taking on someone who's one of these three kind of icons of, of DC Comics and yeah, comics yeah. in yeah. general?
4: Yeah, well they they came at the same time because when I went down to visit uh, DC when I got the, the invite to come and pitch some stuff on the day that they kind of signed everyone. So I went down, and it was Animal Man was the the one I kind of come up with that on the train because I thought I'd better come up with something. <laughs> so Animal, Animal Man was very swiftly created out of just here's what I'm into, here's what I'd love to just write about. But Arkham Asylum had been in my head for years, and it'd been mm. plotted out, and I'd to talked it to over with with a good friend of mine in Glasgow who was you know just obsessively into psychology and and symbolism. So we went through this whole kind of process long before that of what would you do with Mm. Batman? What what would be a Batman story? And Len Wein, who's probably my biggest influence in comics, had done a a who's who in DC entry about Arkham Asylum. And he just had to invent this stuff from whole cloth. So he talks about, you know, Amadeus Arkham was the founder. The guy committed suicide or didn't commit suicide. he, He kills one of his patients after the stock market collapse. But there's just a line that says, after finding his wife and child murdered, and he commits suicide because of the stock market collapse. And I said, well, anyway, let's backtrack. You're surely finding your wife and child murdered might have <laughs> yeah. triggered, triggered the suicidal response before. <laughs> so, but but that one line was just like, okay, let's tell that guy's story. That seems interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think I read Arkham quite recently. and I mean, I, I, I'm going to write a big piece about it again, because I think it's been very misunderstood over the years, but mm. I think mm. that whole story of Amadeus Arkham is really interesting. I think that's what gives it the, the, the real gothic underpinning. In what way
2: do you think people
4: have misunderstood the yeah. uh, I think of... they misunderstood that from the very beginning, they didn't understand that what we were trying to do was like a European, like one of those like Jan Svankmajer puppet movies, one of those animated mm. something really cranky, like woodcut, like you know, like like Nosferatu, like uh, mm. what's his name? Like the you know the, the vampire guy. Like uh, I'm forgetting the names, but Bram Sto- but It was it. Not not Bram Sto- the the oh, filmmaker, was movie. Yeah.
1: Uh, like, oh,
4: what's it uh, called? Now. Yeah. Murnau, right, Murnau, so that's what we were looking at in German mm. Expressionism, and and we thought, because I was, I was going to the cinema a lot to see kind of weird, like, you know, with Maya Deren's Meshes of the Afternoon and a lot of John Cocteau's stuff, which we loved as well, and fed into Batman, and we thought, can we do a Batman that's like a tarot card, that's like an exploded mm. tarot card, so then we took the idea of the, the Moon Tarot, which was Trump 18, and... It's, a, it's about trial and initiation, it's about illusion and intoxication and madness. So we, we took that and thought what if we do, a, it's like almost like a tarot card folded out with Batman mm. going on a journey through the, all the symbolism of that tarot card and plugging the villains in. Mm. And so what I think people, people after things like Killing Joke and after Dark Knight, they were looking for another big cinematic kind
1: of. Mm-hmm.
4: American Batman and we then we did this Euro Batman and Batman himself, <laughs> yeah. but but it was also it was like that whole because they'd said to me like well the new Batman he's he's doubts his mission he's like, isn't he uh-huh. he's like this is the new way we're looking at him this is the grounded gritty way so I thought like well, let's let's talk about that but for me it was always this was this was a dream that Bruce Wayne would have every week maybe. Mm. And he would wake up from this. It was like Alice in Wonderland, and it's, it's structured like Alice in Wonderland. It's got Alice, it's got Carol coats at either end. So the whole idea was to do something that was much more kind of left brainy, or uh, you know, poetic, or, or is it left or right brain? I can't remember. <laughs> but uh, but you know what I mean? It was like we wanted to do this Euro puppet theatre Prague silhouettes kind of version of Batman. And I think it was constantly compared to things that were much more cinematic, much more Hollywood, much more blockbuster mm. versions of Batman, which in themselves were brilliant in all love these books, but it wasn't what we were doing. And I've, not, I've rarely seen it critiqued in, in that. You know, I've never seen yeah. it critiqued as, what's it like compared to Cocktail? What's it like compared to, what are they taking from Jan Schwenkmeier here? What is it? You know, it's like it's always critiqued in the ways that it's not like killing Joker Dark Knight. <laughs>
3: you know <what> I mean? <laughs> <laughs> the cost of releasing a book between 86 and massive
4: But people, it's, it's weird because it's the biggest selling graphic novel ever. I mean, I, I still get massive royalties from that one book, which was published 30 years ago. But there was always, even in DC, a reluctance to admit to its success. It's, mm. rare, it's rarely talked about in those terms which I kind of find fascinating. So yeah. again, you yeah, know, I'm, I'm, it's, it's an interesting one to me. I think it's, it's, it should be looked at from a different angle, maybe because I don't think it's yielded a lot of great criticism over the years. Yeah.
2: It's interesting that that story has a lot of elements, obviously a lot of deep symbolic elements, multi-layered elements is kind of like a psychological Gothic horror, um, feel to it. Uh, how was that, received at the time and just to uh, uh, piggyback off what you were saying, mm-hmm. it's interesting that you felt like, oh, this story was out of step with the kind of like cinematic intent mm-hmm. at the time. And yet a lot of that stuff has now found its way into cinema, into Batman movies, into the mm-hmm. dark Knight, into, into the latest Batman movie, a lot of that kind of tone and symbolic uh, referential
4: nature Yeah well, I think definitely and A lot of those Filmmakers grew up With that book I mean mm-hmm. And I think I mean honestly I, it, Initially I imagined It as a very Super like Focused thing I've, I've talked about it before I said I imagined Someone Not not necessarily Brian Boland But a Gary Leach Or someone in that You know Who would super draw Every detail Like Dave Gibbons yeah, yeah So I kind of imagined It as this hyper Sensitive Like super Every every bit of dirt Is in your face Mm-hmm. And when it came out, and people people were very, you know, the reaction was 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 quite negative. I think from generally from in, within the comic book community, and mm-hmm. not so much from outside. But I mean, honestly, what Dave McKean did—I mean, looking back—is that that's exactly the way the book should be, and yeah. it's why that's why filmmakers still love that book because of what Dave did. It's like he just took it to a level that I think. You know, anyone who's into Batman comes in and that's the one that's beyond all the others. That's, mm-hmm. the, that's the weird one. That's like, oh, have you read after my son? Have you got to that one yet? Have you seen, <laughs> you know? And I think, honestly, all that's Dave. And it's, it's why I've, I'm, I've gone back and I've been studying it again. I'm kind of loving it again because I was so anti it. The, the, the negative reaction was so strong. That I really was like, oh, no, honestly, nothing to do with me, folks, you know?
3: <laughs> yeah, when I, I worked in a comic book shop in mm-hmm. London um, and that was one of our perennial... Mm-hmm. You've got to read this. It's like, and, and it was yeah. horror comics people, yeah. and it was film people, and it was superhero but actually,
4: people. But don't you think, visually, I think it really brings in the directors always love it. Like, you know, oh the, my, all,
3: all the time. Face, it's this, like storyboarding. Yeah. yeah.
4: But it's not, it's because it's so internalized. It's like mm-hmm. inside Batman's head. It's not like, well, what if he was real, you know? Yeah. What if he wasn't of, real? What yeah. If but he was if he, he wasn't happening? real? What if this was Bruce Wayne's dream and all you had to do was have him going to sleep at one end and waking up at the other end? It's like <laughs> you're not allowed to really tell that story. Oh, it was all a dream. But here's the yeah. story. That is a stage play. It would work. It's like that is, and that's why I think it, it draws, like, you know, it, it draws uh, uh, filmmakers, particularly directors. You can always hear them, that's their favorite. But that's the, honestly, that's Dave, and it's Dave's staging. He was just mm-hmm. like. That was like getting the best director I could have hoped for because my vision for it was too small.
3: Yeah. And something that's kind of, I guess something that I find really interesting about that, I think I would, I'm so excited that you want to write about it more because... Mm -hmm now we have an accessibility to stuff like Meyer You know, the Jabberwocky's just on, yeah, yeah. it's just on YouTube. Yeah. And a lot of people, yeah, I think no. they haven't seen that stuff. They haven't read Band of Destiny before. They hadn't.
4: But also it's stuff they would love. I mean, I, I think all that, all that stuff is like, you know, people who are into genre, who are into movies, they're going to love the Swankmeier stuff, it was just, it, it was avant-garde in the 80s or the 90s, but right now I think it's like people's imaginations have been broadened by all kinds of television shows and films. Mm-hmm. Everyone's been woken up to science fiction and fantasy and horror. So I, I think things like that, that once were completely outsider kind of stuff would easily fit. Netflix It show those, you know, Swankmeier's Alice and all the, the early stuff, it's, it's amazing.
3: Yeah. Also, I mean, you can watch if you have a library card, you can watch uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari for free, you know, on the on the mm. streaming services and stuff. So I think it would yeah. be really cool to. I mean, that book, like you said, it's like the most <laughs> successful <laughs> like, graphic novel ever. So people can read yeah, it, but it's it, would still be, isn't it. It's like, yeah, well, crazy. I cannot, I, I, I,
4: and I feel weird because I've always been defensive about it and I've stopped. I've decided, no, I'm 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 out and proud. I'm that, that was a great thing, you know. I'm not going to be defensive anymore.
3: I'd love to see people get to recontextualize it with that knowledge and those kind of touch points. I mean who
4: knows who knows if they will, but I think they should look at it that way. It's it's like theatre, it's like it's not comics, it's not mm-hmm. it's like Arto, it's like, you know, it's 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 those influences were what made Arkham Asylum. I mean, I've I've never seen it kind of studied in those terms. I've always seen it compared to films or to something else that that it was not not influenced by.
2: About a year ago, Tim Seeley, the artist Tim Seeley, uh, shared a panel Mm -hmm. from uh, your run on Batman. I think it's Batman 666. And it's Damien. And uh, around Damien are these uh, text bubbles uh, uh, that are the... Television news, like that, he is listening to. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. and it's like temperatures. Temperatures rose uh, for a record-breaking 123rd day. Quarantine restrictions remain, remain, but British authorities,
4: yeah, Chinese epidemic, uh, which claimed more
2: than 18 million lives, (laughs) will soon be under control, say Chinese health authorities. And this is 2007. And it's interesting because when people talk about your work, they often talk about this kind of far-flung. Uh, almost predictive quality. And at the same time, I think if you look back, you're just drawing very logical, rational lines from things that were happening at the time. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that stuff yeah. now?
4: It's just weather. It's just like seeing how the weather works, you know? It's, yeah. You know, as I've always said, one, when I talk about magic, you know, one part of magic back in the days of the pharaohs you would be considered magic if you'd worked out how the Nile works and works out how the seasons work and mm-hmm. how the Nile sometimes that fertilizes the valley and sometimes it's dry. To the Pharaoh, your knowledge is magic, because he's not thought on these scales, he's not studied those particular patterns. So it's just honestly, it's just a case of here's the pattern here's what it's obviously going to play out here's how it's played out before in history and here's how it's likely to play out again because these things tend to fractal in the same ways and this is what it's likely to be like in 10 years time so it's not hard but like i said magic sometimes looks like magic to people in the same Mm -hmm. way that weather looks weather looks like weather how do they know what the weather's going to be in LA and yet they can tell you to the minute they tell you the clouds will pass at 12 a.m. oh wow the clouds just passed so it's it's just uh it's just observation you know and seeing where the strands are going to play and it's, it's why i'm I'm very concerned that i live four miles from nato's number one nuclear target right oh, God. <laughs> yeah I, i'm in i'm in the red zone the actual red bit where everything is obliterated so yeah, think about that. 2022.
3: <laughs> it's fun. It's fun. Yeah, it's a, a, Kind of, I guess, like in the, in the, something that I feel like kind of combines that predictive nature and that kind of, that more esoteric, but also links into like talking about how you originally imagined Arkham as this super detailed, hyper detailed thing. Let's talk about X-Men. Because new X-Men, yeah, yeah, you know, nice, Frank's nice. work on there. That is a book that I feel like it ended up predicting a lot it ended up shaping how the x-men existed for decades on screen in comics what was it like for you you'd take you dc batman like that yeah. you'd done that pillar what was it like for you to take on the x-men who have this again that is a mythological amount of space to play with and, and stories to add to what was your kind of approach there and, and how did new x-men come to be
4: well, it was uh, Joe Quesada called up and he said, "Do you want to do Spider-Man or X-Men?" And <laughs> I just, I, <laughs> what, a <choice>. you know,
1: <laughs> what a choice! yeah,
4: but I like Spider-Man, but I just have no connection. Never had any connection to that guy. Feel nothing about Spider-Man. You know, I like the movies, but I, I, I had nothing for Spider-Man. But I like team books. I like ensemble books, and I like you know different characters kind of clashing with one another. So I, I said, "I'll do X-Men." And then thinking about it was just, well, like, what can we do with I And mean, I hate the kind of the, the persecuted thing. You know, I thought it was time. And it seemed like time, again, it's like the nostalgia, the, the poignancy of the past. Mm-hmm. You know, around about 2000, you know, everyone thought we're really doing it here. It's been 10 years since the fall of the Berlin. Wall. wow. Globalization's a good one, not a yeah. bad one. And, <laughs> you know, there was this sense, like there was a, a potential the 21st century yeah. had come. And then everything really changed, and it's got just more and more beset. But the X Men was kind of coming after the Invisibles, and the Invisibles had been very mm-hmm, utopian. Yeah. And I began to see the different strands that would would that the utopian vision might not be. You know that might be in a bit 60s, a bit. You know you were taking a lot of ecstasy, and of course everything looked wonderful. <laughs> so th- there was that sense of like, where, where's it going to go next? And but what I did want to do, like I say, was I i really saw the rise of geek culture. I saw that there was going to be superhero films. Now there's going to be a retreat into almost infantilism where culture would back off from the future because the future was suddenly scary. It was, we don't want to go there anymore. It's like, oh no, it's it's dystopia. It used to be Star Trek. Now it's The, it's the Walking Dead. And, and mm. even though The Walking Dead wasn't around at that time, but that's that's my... my these are my two polarities, you know. And at that time, it was like, oh, let's let's not face the future. Let's let's uh, talk about the past. So you're getting music recycled. Everything was recycled, and and children's comics from the sixties were being turned into blockbusters. So it was about that. And I thought, well, that's the it's, it's the idea of the geek culture, the nerd culture, the underground culture. God, all of us who are alternative. Suddenly, you get exposed to the light. You know, instead of Playboy bunnies, suddenly you would mm. suicide girls. It was like the alternative was sexed up and sold. You know, and so that was annoyingly, But I thought I have to kind of reflect the fact that, in 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 a way, that means we we poisoned them, we colonized them, and so but we never knew what to do with what we'd done. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and, but yeah, they, they they you know it's true. They the you know, our food they they watch our movies they love our characters that's so we we won but we kind of they were creepier and weirder than us so they kind of messed it up but x-men was about well what if they won because i was fed up with the persecution for. Mm. i thought what if humanity finds out tomorrow that we have an extinction gene that's done it's like you guys are like a cancer It's been mm-hmm. you know, nature just shut you down and the reason homo superior exists is in order to carry this forward in the same way that you carried it forward from Neanderthals or whatever your story you tell yourself is. And it became, I thought, oh, there's there's potential there because then you can create the idea of mutant culture and the notion like, because the idea of humans fighting mutants, I thought, it seems a bit like punching down if the mutants are uh, just a persecuted minority. But I thought, what if they become like, they're coming for you? are Mm. your children they they are the future all the things you believe they're about to be overturned by these beautiful young freaks and so it was kind of like i say it was me talking about what was happening at the Mm. time but it was like so what if suddenly you found out you are it's over and it was because to me that's the reality of of growing older it's like there's other people coming move on Mm-hmm. and so rather than the x-men being like oh they're under the thumb and it's the sentinels it's like, well, if war for Winning, that would really make the war intensify and i thought oh, well gives it more drama you know it's yeah. like humans are now reacting to potential extinction but we can imagine that the nice mutants will probably figure out a way to save human mm-hmm. humans. so you have this great drama and that that was it so i thought I, don't, I always, my, my favourite X-Men was just the whole Chris Claremont, John Byrne yeah, thing when I course. was a kid. So, you know, that was the one. It was just that he, ha- he he was hitting every note and it was very progressive for the time. So I was looking back at that and I thought, well, in... in in the way that the Justice League was the the kind of mythology, it was like folk tales of larger than life figures. X Men is is soap opera, you know. It's always mm. about soap opera. So I thought it's got to have evil twins. It's got to have <laughs> the, it's got to have the Joan Collins bitch. It's got to have yeah. You know, and, and it was just all I would built it like Dynasty, or you know, or like Dynasty, and kind of. <laughs> That was where I thought it's, it's got to be soap It's got mm-hmm. constant, like, falling out affairs and, like, screaming matches. And, like, yeah, the <laughs> So, yeah. yeah, so that that was where it came from. And I, I just built it around that. And then the, the weirdness of kind of almost predicting what happened in 9-11, that we had that yeah. issue mm-hmm. out, like, that was nuts. Like, but I knew, you can feel it. You can feel it, like I say, you feel, the weather, you can feel it coming. Mm. So there was that. And then it was kind of became this post 9-11, you know, here's here's the future. How are you going to deal with it?
2: Yeah, it's very interesting. I want to unpack something you said, because I I find it fascinating. I think most many creators, many storytellers would think, okay, let's start our characters at this at at a kind of low level. And then, you know, in fits Mm. and starts, let's get them to finish somewhere higher and you said something very interesting, tapping into the kind of feeling at the time, late 90s, early 2000s, pre 9 11, the idea that Western capitalism is one. We won. Mm-hmm. The Russians are done. Mm-hmm. The, uh, communism is done. Yeah, the end of history, Francis Fukuyama, you know. The end of history, right? And so you plug into all of that and say, okay, the, the mutants have won. They're actually mm-hmm. like gods that walk the earth, the celebrities. They look beautiful. They're extremely powerful. They're incredibly rich. Uh, yeah. they won. And then you and even the, the ugly drama. ones
4: are beautiful, you know? Uh-huh. And then, uh-huh.
2: the thing. It was and then like, you found the drama through this mm-hmm. th- what comes after the victory. Um was was that how did you pitch that to Marvel, or was it just and and uh, what was their reaction to that when you said, I want to do it where they win? Where you know, Joe, I want to do mm-hmm. it where they win.
4: No, even everyone was fine with it because they just wanted to shake the thing up. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, I had, I had the whole proposal I sent in from beginning to end, and it, it changed a little bit, but not much. And the whole zone reveal is right there, you know, you can read it, it's, it's there, but it they were fine with it, but it was only afterwards, but it was suddenly, oh, you know, let's make them a, a beleaguered minority again, I just thought, well... You know, and then that Scarlet Witch, Wanda, my wife, is there, (laughs) 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 because remember, uh, this is the vision you're talking to, this red-faced plastic monstrosity is the vision. No, so, and then she just like wiped them all out again, which was a weird, Mm. but it's what you can do and it's that's what happens if you're living in a fictional universe never never mind reality you know someone could just say no more mutants and all that story potential disappears
3: as a creator because I mean I like how you you're like you you accept that that's how it is Mm. but how you have such a great philosophical kind of esoteric way of looking at these stories but how does it feel to you when you see that kind of thing happen like is it part and parcel is it two sides of the sword of you being able to create something incredible as someone else can take it away but how does it feel for you as as the person who birthed those ideas along with your artistic collaborators to kind of see them changed or or erased
4: oh, it's honestly it's disappointing as you might imagine you know but mm. at the same time it's it's part and parcel of the the compact that is made yeah we have there's tons of us making this quilt, you know, and some, mm-hmm. some sew it slightly differently. And I, I can't, and it's it's not, you know, I'll, I'll just look at things that I've done or other people do versions of them and it's like, oh, you don't get that, you don't get that. And I'm sure they feel exactly the same because it's all it's all interpretation. So you have to remember that. It's just, a, it's like a role, like I had Batman, you know, with with uh, Dick Grayson was on mm-hmm. Alfred says it's just a role you've got to play, you know, being the X-Men, you take on that role for a few years and you hope that your version of your portrayal of that is, is remembered fondly. But there will be other portrayals that seem to, to you know, to kind of contradict that, like the difference between Joaquin Phoenix's Joker and, you know, the, yeah. the, yeah. the other boy. What's his name? I've forgotten him. Poor old God.
3: Uh Jared Leto.
1: No,
4: as well. Juggly, but yeah. all of them. So they're all they're all very different. And I think you just have to, in in long running superhero universes and and continuities, you have to understand that everyone's got a take. Mm. And some of the takes, you will go, oh no, you don't. We don't, don't get it. You haven't read that book, or you don't understand that that guy meant that when he said that, or she meant that when she was writing that. So you kind of just have to. I, I tend not to read them afterwards, because mm. it, is a, it mm-hmm. is a bit like, you know, it's like, you know, it's just seen someone else get out with your, your, your lover. Your lover. <laughs> you go, yeah, okay, I'm, I wish you guys all the best. but. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of
3: actually lean into something that we've been talking about a lot there, which is like, we are living in an unprecedented time as people who grew up with this stuff, who it wasn't, it was on the fringe, it was radical, it was subversive. Mm-hmm. And now we're living in a world where, all these corporations are talking about multiverses, different yeah. versions of the same character. They're so talking about like these dreaming. kind of essence. Yeah. You yeah. know? Yeah. And what what how does that feel to you to be living in this space where people can imagine the things that you've been seeing and the way that you understood it as these different characters living alongside each other? And and it's kind of like, what's it like to see that become real in in this? kind of modern day space?
4: Well, it's not so much it's become real as I think what you're you're saying is it's become commodified in a way that before it was seen as as non-commodifiable. But we made the multiverse commodifiable till everyone wants one, you know? So I kind (laughs) of... But you no, know, but you you kind of think that through, and it I've always talked about the multiverse. It's like well, corporations would love this because it's like you know it's like orange Kit cat, coffee Kit Kat, it's like white mm-hmm. Kit cat, it's like coconut Kit cat. They love to take a basic idea and then just smear it out across a spectrum of possibilities that isn't is quite limited, and so they love the notion of the multiverse. It's it's seen as I'm sure quite a limited potential, but you can have, you know, here's your red superman, here's your blue superman, here's, mm-hmm. your, you know, here's your, here's your here's your original Coca-Cola, here's they love versions of things to to sell you the same rubbish over and over again. So I think the multiverse definitely appeals. But higher in and, and a higher sense than that, mm-hmm. I like the idea that the notion of the multiverse is becoming accepted. Cause I always yeah. think when a concept starts to become accepted the walls of reality become thin and that concept maybe actually starts breaking through. Like the possibilities for it being real maybe start to be noticed. The next thing I think we'll hear is, you know, our telescopes have discovered uh, a weird uh, dark matter fluctuation that suggests the close-by universe. And that's all we can hope for. I think the fact that people are getting into it means really there's something coming. There's a notion of this, this mm. absolute fragmenting into all possibilities which I think could be, you know, that might, might break down a few categories when we expand into every possibility simultaneously. I wanted to uh,
2: link back to something you mentioned earlier in the interview. You, you uh, used the word hyperobject to describe this kind mm-hmm. of like vast catalogue of, of comic stories, uh, both uh, metaphysical and physical. Uh, hyperobject... Uh, is the word that was invented by the environmental philosopher Tim Morton to kind of describe a yeah, different, plastic. yeah, the process. Plastic is flight. a hyper
4: object. Weather is a hyper object. Yeah, oh, t- object. tell water me. Tell water us, is a hyper object.
2: Yeah, I want if you could just mm-hmm. uh, unpack the the idea of the hyper object and what what it means to you vis a vis comics.
4: The hyper object is it's it's an object, a physical object that's so widely distributed it 's hard to see it in its entirety, so mm. we don't necessarily recognize the fact that it's a singular thing right you know so i could i can actually the entirety of the of of the history of life is that you know, but we're yeah. talking in, in terms of comics the d c universe is a hyper object it's distributed across decades it's been added to by multiple voices and multiple generations, but it still holds its same basic shape. It's like a coral that keeps the same. Yeah. You can, there's only so much you can push it before it's the Marvel Universe or before it's, uh-huh. the, it's, it's, it's Archie, you know? So it's a hype object, basically, in, in that sense that I first described it. as, It's distributed so widely that it's hard to see it as a singular thing.
3: I could just talk about this kind of conceptual stuff all day. So, how yeah, does, me
4: too, so. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I'm like, okay, so how, I just wonder how you feel like, I love the way that you talk about like interacting with comics and that comes through with your work in this kind of fictional space. How do you feel like, do you feel like that power of those conversations and the reality of comics still exists in the space where we have all these different movies and, and the sort of that expands the idea of them as hyper objects like do you feel like even if there's a commodification and there's a Mm -hmm. there's a very corporate aspect to it do you feel like there's a way that it's actually expanding people's understanding or people's access to these kind of stories and thoughts
4: yeah absolutely I think and that's that's what we were saying earlier you know the sense that if you can sit to Avengers Endgame then you're being asked to consider like beings from another world, in the simplest mm-hmm. level, you've been asked to consider the potential that uh, like crystals could somehow, con- you know, contain energy of of a, um, a, a scale and 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 substance that could alter the universe. That people have been asked to accept really weird things, you know, like that. You don't know, yeah. Robert Downey Junior. could actually survive the impact in that flimsy <laughs> yeah, <right>. that flimsy <laughs> suit. Yeah. You know, it's. So, yeah, I mean, as I say, I think the boundaries of imagination have been pushed much wider, and not mm-hmm. just by by Marvel movies, but by by everything that people are consuming right across Netflix shows. And, they you know, it's vampires, it's, it's gods, it's demons, it's monsters. It's it, 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 There's more demand for that. I mean, there's there's way less of anything, though there is a niche for it, there's way less of anything that's like, say, 70s or 2s cinema around, but there's mm-hmm. a lot of... Stuff that was once the province of comics and of geeks and of of you know of, of people who are into genre material is 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 way wider now. It's much more mainstream. So I do think that people's imaginative envelopes have been stretched. You know, but it, still, they are still fed a, a limited diet of particular things. But it's it's way more than than back in the day when people would have thought, "What's well, It's a show about aliens? No way! I'm not watching that. That's ridiculous." Mm-hmm. Or it's it's about magic, or it's about that's the people wouldn't even have those conversations now. They would just watch it if it was cool and it was you know you could binge it.
2: Um, so much of the texture of your work and the way people respond to it is that kind of referential, predictive uh almost this feeling of of prophecy within the story of a world of, you know, drawing these lines uh, to a world that uh, seems like it could exist sometime in the future and oftentimes that seems dark or, or somewhat twisted or or almost dystopian. Uh, and then I think of your work of all-Star Superman, which is so optimistic. Mm-hmm. What what are you? What is Grant Morrison optimistic about mm. in
1: in twenty twenty? <laughs> 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 what do you got, Grant? We need something right now. Yeah, that's, that's
4: the one. That's the one. <laughs> I'm optimistic. No, just honestly, you see people in the in hell. You know, I'm watching it on TV every night. Yeah, are still they're still fighting. They're still standing up for whatever they're standing up for. It's like some some power within us to resist tyranny Mm -hmm. and monstrosity Mm. but that you know it's 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 hard to be optimistic and the more optimistic you are the more people throw things in your face to prove that you shouldn't be optimistic so I'm very guarded about it now honestly I've always been optimistic even living four miles from number one target should World War 3 break out I I just I I don't know It's like maybe it's just me i don't know and and about what about what i don't know about the best in us triumphing. about the fact that we keep writing this story because we know it's true and when Mm. are we going to just like play it out why are we writing what we don't need to write that story you know i know there's lots of other stories but fundamentally the other stories don't serve us very well moving forward so what's the forward momentum and the fact that so i mean mean, to me i think that's the kind of duty of fiction and, and it's where i I kind of depart from people who think that fiction should show what life is like, you know, and it's like, yeah, it's kind of shit. You'll kind of be, end up disillusioned, you know, (laughs) comics will break your heart, kid. And all of that's true, but that's not the truth. Cause even within that, I notice that we always, we always look for something to keep going. You know, we always, we Mm -hmm. always favor magic. Nihilism is beat out by magic because at the bottom we always find meaning. We even find meaning in nothingness. So our, desire to find meaning continues to make it positive, if that makes sense. And we always no matter what you do to people, no matter what you bring them down, they'll look for meaning, they'll keep finding a reason to tell a story, they'll keep finding something in it. And I think that ultimately is like, if we could just, if we could just expand that, if we could hold Mm. on to that little flame, that Promethean moment and expand that, like we can make meaning with us. Magic is just making meaning it's just like, why isn't that better than that why you know why can't you do that why can't you try that with it why you let that person thrive rather than kill them you know why do let like yeah. that animal live why don't you and it's that's all I got to offer I know you know I'm just another, I'm just a person just thinking about it
2: well I, hopefully that's enough uh, Grant Morrison mm-hmm. thank you so much for joining us
4: no thanks that was great I, I enjoyed the conversation yeah that was wonderful
2: thank you so much thanks for joining us Grant up next nerd out In this week's Nerd Out, our recurring segment where you tell us what you love and why, Sean pitches us on Final Fantasy IV Free
5: Enterprise. My name is Sean from Phoenix. My Nerd Out is an open world randomizer of a 30-year-old video game, Final Fantasy IV Free Enterprise. The original Final Fantasy IV, released as Final Fantasy II on the Super Nintendo in the US, was my introduction to JRPGs. I was fascinated with the game as a kid, a high fantasy story of a Dark Knight trying to save the world and discover the hero within himself. The original game story was wild and emotional, but it's pretty linear. Members come and go It's at times, and you bounce from one mission to another. The story is about as straightforward as you can get when your story involves a giant robot and flying a whale to the moon. That's where Final Fantasy IV Free Enterprise comes in. You start with the airship Enterprise, which opens up the entire world. Bosses, key items, treasures, and quests are randomized, allowing for millions of options. You can hunt for the crystal you need to defeat the final boss, Seromus, or you can set yourself to earn it through completing objectives. Along the way, you get to revisit the characters that made the game so compelling in the first place. The Dark Knight Cecil, who knows that he must save himself to save the world. The Spoonie Bard Edward, the Twin Magic users Palim and Porim, and so many more. Free Enterprise makes quality of life improvements like the ability to toggle random encounters, but the charming sprites and art, the spirit and heart, and the killer Uematsu soundtrack remain. I came for the nostalgia, but I stay for the endless customization and replayability. Anytime is a great time to roll yourself a seed and give it a try. But now is a perfect time to join the community. The Spring Speed Racing Tournament, the Adamant Cup, runs from early March through May. Races are broadcast on twitch.tv slash All the information needed to get started and to join one of the most inclusive communities on the internet is at ff4fe.com. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, X Ray Vision. And remember, wish everyone. Thanks for submitting, Sean.
2: If you want to be featured, send your nerd out pitch to xray at crooked.com. Instructions are in the show notes up next, the end game. <laughs> We're in the end game now, and today we are ranking our top three video game adaptations and why we love them. Rosie, are you ready? <laughs> I am definitely ready. Okay, you want to go first? Yes, my first pick is yeah.
3: most people have probably never seen this movie, but you should go and watch it streaming on every free streaming service. It is Double Dragon.
2: Oh, I love Double Dragon, I, the video game. I love Double Dragon, the movie. Yes, okay, but fun. One
3: of the best most fun and accessible video games that also spawned like every great video game like that. Like there are so many brilliant walk-along beat-em-ups and I love them. But yeah, the movie is so good. It stars Mark Dacascos, who I love and will literally watch in any movie. He's also in the incredible Crying Freeman adaptation, which is a great manga adaptation. Uh, Alyssa Milano is in it. Uh, Scott Wolf is the is the brother of Mark wow. DeCascos in hilarious fashion. <laughs> and it's like, it's one of the funnest things because now it's 2022, but the movie's from the 90s and it's set in 2007 when like an earthquake has destroyed Los Angeles and everyone's yes, like course. a post-apocalyptic punk. And uh, Alyssa Milano has the sickest look she's maybe ever had in her whole career. And it is just like... It's so hokey, but I this 90s era of video games I actually love. I, I it's so much fun. They weren't afraid to do weird stuff. This has like yeah. this has cool this this does what the Street Fighter movie doesn't, which is this actually like leans into the supernatural of it all, which I think is really really fun. And uh, and yeah, this is just this is like a great movie. Also apparently the story was by Paul Dini, which is just Whoa. I know like <laughs> unexpected uh paul dini batman animated series creator like one of our favorites we talk about him a lot so yeah it's just it's this is a bunch of fun this is like one of those things where i'm like just go and watch it and you will have fun if you think it sucks and it's badly made you will still have fun watching it but you might find it's like a it's like a solid b-movie
2: gem Mm, i like it my first pick will be injustice the uh the uh Comic series mm-hmm. and the animated comic movie mm-hmm. streaming now on HBO Max, which is an adaptation of the hit video game of the same name. Yep, uh, which is a beat 'em up, uh, fight 'em up, uh, video game uh, based around the idea that Superman just flips out because he's been spoiler alert tricked into killing. Uh, <gasps> Lane, uh, and he goes nuts, and th- uh, the heroes of Earth kind of like split along certain lines, and they have to stop him. It's for a comic adapted from a video game. Unbelievably good, like everyone, it's good. It, <laughs>
3: like it, it shouldn't be good, but it's that good. ran for <laughs> like shout out to Tom Taylor, who was the the writer who was given that unenviable yeah. task and suddenly made that one of the biggest comics in the world. Like, the, the depth, that this, the adaptation, the video game's great. Like, I love Realm. I love Mortal Kombat, so I love the, the fighting styles that they use for Injustice, and I love the evil characters. But, like, to then turn that into a legitimately engaging, deep story, and not just yeah. adapt it to comics, but also adapt it to a movie, an animated movie, that's
2: just, that's powerful. Uh, what is your next?
3: Okay, pick? so my next one, I actually... So I'm going to stick all... I'm going to go all 90s just for...
2: I love it. Because it, <laughs> otherwise it. it's
3: hard for me because I actually like a lot of a lot of video game adaptations even though I would argue there hasn't been like a truly magnificent like five Ever. star.
2: I, but, I agree with you. <laughs>
3: but I actually love a lot of them. So my next one is going to be Street Fighter. I This one goes above Double Dragon only slightly. Uh, also 1994 directed by Steven D'Souza. I... I really love this movie. I rewatch it all the time. It's so funny. It's really silly. It doesn't lean enough into the supernatural. I think there's a, it's, you know, Jean-Claude Van Damme. For some, the character. they always do this with this. The, the characters they choose to be the main characters, you're like, why would you do this? Like, Ken and Ryu, <laughs> first of all, the guy they cast as Ken, that is like one of my most annoying, I'm still annoyed about that casting, you know, 20 years later. But like, Ken and Ryu are comedy, they're comedy relief in this movie. It makes no sense. Like, why would, they, it, nothing about it makes any sense. But it is like so fun. Raul Julia plays M. Bison and he is just unbelievable. And he he chews up all the scenery and he did the movie because people were like, why would you do this movie? It was so trash. And he did it because his kids loved Street Fighter and he wanted to do something <laughs> his kids would love. And he has this like unreal line where she says to him, like, uh, it's him and chun and and she says, she's asking him if he remembers when he killed her family. And he's like, you know, God the day I graced your village was, you know, that was the most important day of your life. But to me, it was just a Thursday or something. Jesus. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> and and it's so fun. And, you know, Kylie Minogue is in it. Also, there's like a oh, really, wow. there's a, yeah, Kylie Minogue is in it as Cammy, I think. So,
2: it is like what was I? It's been such a long yeah. time since I've, I've seen the movie. I forgot what was the excuse for the split. The John Claude Van Damme split in this. When when did he do the split?
3: Oh, I mean, it happens more than once. And also, there's oh, a, okay. there's like a really famous and hilarious interview that's been doing the rounds recently with. Um, oh yeah, and Ming Na Wen plays Chan Lee, which is like unbelievable oh, yeah, casting. Great. Yeah, great. Oh, yeah, it's Damien Chapa who plays Ken. Like, why did they do that? But Byron Mann plays Ryo and he's wonderful. <laughs> but <laughs> there's a really famous interview that's going around at the moment virally again with Steven D'Souza, the director, where he talks about how, like, Jean-Claude was just, like, coked out of his mind the whole time. And when you watch the oh, movie, no. like, you can see it. And one of my fit oh, this no. movie is not in my top three, right? The Street Fighter is, but Street Fighter Legend of Chun-Li is not. But I will say that movie has an unbelievable bathroom fight scene and a very famous cocaine-fueled performance by Chris Klein. So it <laughs> continues the legend. But yeah, Street Fighter, 1994, another
2: movie that you'll have a lot of I fun love it. with. I am going to pick for my second pick... A, a a recent release arcane mm-hmm. netflix's arcane which is the uh, adaptation of lore from league of legends now this is very interesting in the sense that i've never played league of legends yep i don't know the lore at all i don't uh, usually like the move in a video game adaptation right is they always give you that scene that is a wink at like the way the game is so for mm-hmm. instance in the in the episode one of halo you when uh master chief touches down on madrigal and starts uh slogging away against the covenant yeah. there's a moment where like you go into his visor and you see the first person view yeah. of him aiming his gun the whole thing and if that happens in arcane i have no idea mm-hmm. i don't know i just know that it was great and i really enjoyed yeah. it i thought the art was amazing the characters were really great uh I just really, really liked it. It looked almost too real at times.
3: That's, that's a show that I think, not only is it like a stunning show, I've never played League of Legends either, and it's um, but it's like the rare adaptation. This is probably actually one of those five star if we're talking about a video game adaptation. Like, mm-hmm. It not only pushes the boundaries of what a video game adaptation can be, but also the format of animation. Like you said, like when you're watching it, you spend so much of the time going, how did they do that? Is it yeah, rotoscope? I it. Is it 2D? Is it CG? They use so many formats. It feels like
2: uh, it feels a bit like the first time you see Spider Verse. Completely agree. It's like that. There's like this hard, almost like hard-edged, like cell shading mm-hmm. kind of look, and, and different line
3: just- weights and.
2: Yeah, Yeah. it's like, it's just really, really cool. I love it. What's your next pick? Well, I'm absolutely
3: really happy that you went for like legit quality ones because I'm really going for that. This is the triple bill of 90s classics. So my first one, and I do legitimately love this movie, is Mortal Kombat, which came out in 1995, uh, directed by Paul Anderson, who would obviously go on to do, Paul W.S. Anderson would obviously go on to do like a lot of video game adaptations. But this is my favorite. I love this Mortal Kombat movie. It's campy as hell. Um, it is so campy. It <laughs> is, like, so enjoyable. Uh, and I think that, like, Robin Show is... Uh, K- Liu Kang is, like, one of the all-time best castings. He And the martial arts are actually really good. It doesn't... It doesn't do well. It's a PG... You know, PG-13 isn't that always the way. So you don't get that mm-hmm. brutal bloodiness of the video games, which Mortal Kombat is probably my favorite video game of all time. So... But there's just something about this movie that I love. This soundtrack is full of unbelievable bangers. Like, it's so good. And it has every great character. You know, it has, oh yeah, Kari Hiroyuki Togawa as uh, Shang Tsung. And that's such popular casting that they actually bought him back for one of the video games recently because it was like so iconic. And uh, And I also... I would say I also uh, did enjoy. I think this is this was on Netflix, but I think it's on HBO Max now. And I I did enjoy the new Mortal Kombat. If you want a more R-rated one, also another great, uh, Liu Kang casting there. And yeah, I just I love Mortal Kombat. And this movie is like probably one of my most rewatched movies
2: because it's just so much fun. What's your number one? Oh God! Uh, so this is a cheat, and I don't care. I'm going to do it. And with a caveat of. This movie came out in 1984, so it might be problematic now, and, and I haven't seen it since I was, a, for a long time. I've seen it since I was a kid, but as a kid, I loved it. So if it's problematic now, apologies. Apolo- all apologies. The Last Starfighter from 1984. Wow. Now, here's the thing about The Last Starfighter: it's not really a video game adaptation. It's about it's a story about mm-hmm. a kid. It's a story about an alien a genocidal alien war where the very 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 Hail Mary last option of this dying up against the wall alien civilization that's about to be wiped out is to create a video game and send it to i guess like all the inhabited planets of like the galaxy but in particular earth and that video game will like search for talented fighter pilots (laughs) and if they are good enough if they beat the game that means they are skilled enough and they will then be picked up by a starfighter like this unique very very last high-tech super top secret starfighter the last hope of this alien civilization to defeat the enemies and it was it was like it's super fun like you know as a kid it was like any kind of story that was like Actually, like if you get good enough at video games, it's actually really good. Like it's actually beneficial for your and life. You how save good? Well, world. how about if you how about if you save not even just your world but the mm-hmm. galaxy, other planets. And I was like I'm all the way in. So, The Last Starfighter, I'm I'm I thought about The Last Starfighter like a couple weeks ago it, because it seemed like one of those properties that I'm like, oh they haven't rebooted this yet. Mm-hmm. Like they haven't figured out a way to make this 10 episodes of a tv show or they haven't figured out how to just like make the movie again and release it on disney plus wow i'm really surprised at that so the last starfighter i don't know if it's problematic again it came out in 1984 it might be and i'm sorry but the last starfighter that's going to be it because i just loved it so okay much i'm going your- to do i just need
3: i want to do a special mention then because my other one if we were doing it like movies yeah. it would be tron that's like I love I yeah. love the original Tron. That was such a revolutionary
2: movie for me. So shout out to Tron. Love that weird old movie. That's it for the Endgame. Let us know what you think and use hashtag XRV Endgame to give us your pick. Huge thanks to Grant Morrison. Rosie, thanks again for joining us. It's been a delight. Uh, Anything to plug, plug it again. Plug the comic (laughs) book again. (laughs) Yes,
3: I am writing a Godzilla comic with Oliver Ono, the incredible artist who is doing the inks and the colors and the pencils and everything. I'm, I'm sure the letter will also be amazing. And I will shout them out when I find out their name. Uh, that is my plug. You can find me, Rosie Marks, on Instagram, also on Letterboxd, uh, where you can see all the bad movies that I watch. I ah. watched a lot of bad movies in the hotel at Austin, so that was... There's, Would you watch? Oh my God. Uh, they wish, they showed Die Hard, or no, Live Free or Die Hard. They showed it like five times in 24 <laughs> the hours. The All one, The Oliphant one. And that was actually quite fun. And Justin Long and Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who I love, who's also in another great video game, non-video game movie, Scott Pilgrim. Uh, I also watched that Peter Jackson, King Kong movie on the morning when I was packing. And that yeah. is a wild movie. It's a that wild is movie.
2: A, uh, the,
3: that's very problematic. And it's from like the The
2: opening. Let me just say the opening of that movie, you're like, can we do this? Like, is
1: this okay?
3: Oh, it happens a lot in that <laughs> movie. I
2: was like, wow. Oh, is I'm, that su- right? I'm like, I'm surprised they haven't edited this shit out yet. But yeah, I was like, is this okay? Yeah, it's
3: that is um, wild. But Adrian Brody, give him some more romantic leads. The other thing I will plug—it's not me, but it is our co-host superstar Cody Ziglar. Uh, he has oh, a new yes. comic coming out, Spiderpunk Number One by Cody Ziglar. It's out April sixth. That's amazing. He teams up with this brilliant artist called Justin Mason, this unbelievable colorist, uh, Jim Charalampidis, who is just adds so much vibrancy. And Travis Lanham is the letterer, and those letters—like that's probably the best use of lettering I've seen in a comic for a long time. So just good, good stuff. That's going to be a big one.
2: Well, folks, if you want to learn more about what we explore in each episode, check out our listener's guide to all things X-Ray Vision in the show notes or on our website. Catch the next episode. Not, this is legit. No April Fool is on April 1st. And again, send your nerd out submissions to x-ray at Crooked.com. Also, check out our videos on the Uncultured YouTube channel. Last week, Rosie did a really, really unbelievable uh, and incredible and well worth your time video on the impact of Lynn Varley and Richmond Lewis, two women that helped create the unique visual style of Batman and The Dark Knight Returns and Batman Year One. And don't forget, five-star ratings wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us with the five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts on wherever it is. X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. It is executive produced by myself and Sandy Gerard. Caroline Reston and Carlton Gillespie are our consulting producers. And our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Futopoulos. Thank you to Brian Vasquez for our theme music. See you next time.